Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Switzerland, a tiny landlocked country in the middle of Europe is underappreciated for its contributions to all of our histories, mine and probably yours included. It's an incredible place with an extraordinary history and it can teach us a lot, strangely, about ourselves. There is no place like it. Its variety of languages, German, French, Italian, Romance, its mix of democratic institutions, its melting pot of cultures, its unique geography. One historian has claimed that it's the oldest, continuous, true constitutional democracy. I want to look at how Swiss history and politics made it different and how it exported its ideas, liberal, democratic, romantic, cultural, through its most famous prodigal son to the rest of the world. People have been calling themselves Swiss here since at least the 15th century, and that loose confederation of what the Swiss call cantons would soon become one of Europe's most enduring, longest, most interesting cooperative ventures. One of the things that I find fascinating about Switzerland is that despite all of this, and unlike most countries, it's not really the product of natural borders. That's because it's a very human creation. I don't know if you can see, but it's incomprehensible to me how people live up there, like toys stacked precariously on the top shelf, about to fall down at any moment. So I want to look at the long history that made the Swiss lovers of liberty and look at the thought of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a man who could, quite reasonably, be the most influential man to have ever lived. 
Rousseau was the major influence on the French Revolution, the Romantic Revolution, on democracy, on every philosopher that came after him, on thinking about the individual and society, on literature, on autobiography even. He is, I think, the most fascinating figure of the Enlightenment. The historian Robert Burke describes Rousseau as the linchpin of the political consciousness of the entire modern period. And I'd say that more than politics, he's the very basis of how we think of ourselves psychologically today. And he came from here, Geneva. And the historian Helena Rosenblatt calls Geneva the key to his thought. He signed his works Citizen of Geneva. Author Gaspard Vallette called the spirit and accent of his thought Genevan and much of his work as a brochure to Geneva. One philosopher, J.S. Spink, has said that Geneva created Rousseau. It created the essence of his character. All of this raises a big question. How can a place influence a thinker that in turn changes the world, changing the very way we think about ourselves? Let's find out. In the Middle Ages, the area we now refer to as Switzerland was a loose conglomerate of different political bodies. Lords, cities, monasteries, cathedrals, peasant communities, guilds, all with a complex and shifting constellation of different rights and privileges. It was part of the Holy Roman Empire, but mostly left to its own devices. By the 13th century, the great dynastic houses of Central Europe were failing to maintain order. The upkeep of things like roads, bridges and local politics fell, in many places, to the locals, to abbeys, to city ordinances and to local lords. Many village communities here in the Alps managed to retain their independence, organising politically amongst themselves a rare level of autonomy for Europe at the time. These peasant and herder communities were known as strong warriors who maintained local solidarity, which many historians refer to, in Clive Church and Randolph Head's words, as the backbone of Swiss autonomy. Steinberg says that everything was discussed openly at political assemblies. In the 19th century, as we'll get to, the Romantics idealised Swiss history as democratic, wild and free. But how much of that was myth and how much of it was reality? Church and Head write that even where most arms-bearing males could attend public assemblies, a few clans typically monopolised offices and controlled most decisions. But despite this, the Swiss idea of freedom was very real and would expand into something more powerful as Switzerland took shape in the form of a modern nation. Historian Jonathan Steinberg writes that the Alpine herdsmen lived an archaic, independent, quasi-aristocratic form of life. They were free of feudal servitudes and, as a sign of their liberty, these mountain peasants bore arms and demanded honour, even from nobles. Many of their ideas, words and phrases, like honour, came from the Roman occupation almost a millennium before. And you can see this in the Romance language, which is probably the closest living language to Latin. Combine that with unique mountain conditions that required the maintenance of common pastures and important mountain passes, 
terrain that made it difficult for enemies to invade and occupy, and a strong warrior culture on a high cow protein dairy diet, and you get a potent recipe for freedom. In the 13th century, fear of the dominant German House of Habsburg, who were beginning to dominate much of the rest of Central and Eastern Europe, pushed the much smaller Swiss regions towards cooperation. In 1291, three cantons, Uri, Schwitz and Unterwalden, signed a historic founding charter, which was only discovered 600 years later in the 18th century. It read, in order to preserve themselves and their possessions, in common council have with one voice sworn, agreed and determined that in the above named valleys we shall accept no judge nor recognize him in any way if he exercise his office for any reward or for money or if he is not one of our own and an inhabitant of the valleys. They called themselves Eingenossen. Translation, comrades of the oath. This type of allegiance existed nowhere else in Europe, and it worked. In 1315, they fended off an attack from the Habsburgs. The founding act spawned stories, songs and mythologies of freedom, the beginning of an imagined community, a Swiss nation. The Swiss now call it the Saga of Liberation, and many medieval myths and stories would be drawn upon as ammunition in the fight against oppressors a mythology and a history of Swiss liberty. Peasant rebellions in 1489 and 1515 drew on the stories of the saga of liberation. During the Peasant War of 1653, peasants organised themselves into local assemblies drawing on the history of the 1291 Comrades of the Oath. A story of William Tell, a Swiss Robin Hood, emerged. Tell was a legendary marksman who escaped from and led the resistance against a tyrannical Habsburg duke. Songs, poems and stories have been written about him across the centuries. Slowly the alliance grew as more and more cantons joined and for centuries its foundational principles were simple. Mutual aid, internal peace, no foreign intervention, defence. But the medieval region was a mosaic of different cultures and ideas. Steinberg writes that the old confederation was a marvellous patchwork of overlapping jurisdictions, ancient customs, worm-eaten privileges and ceremonies, irregularities of custom, law, weights and measures. And the historian Julius Weiser writes that across the empire, dynastic counties, ecclesiastical principalities, tiny castle baronies, free cities and free peasant communities were interwoven in a colourful fabric. But in Switzerland in particular, at least the idea of democratic participation, if not repressed by elites and aristocrats, continued to be strong. Ultimately, as Church and Headright, the privilege of all male citizens of communes to participate in decision-making which retained great legitimacy in the Confederacy set the Swiss apart from aristocratic Europe. Oh, it's just started raining, but there's two things I have to show you quickly. The size of these cowbells 
and the roar of this river. By the time the Enlightenment hit Europe in the 17th century, Switzerland was a mix of aristocratic and oligarchic systems, all with hesitant or surface-level nods to democracy and its history. Bern was an aristocracy, Zurich mixed city governance with a guild system dominated by craftsmen, in Geneva a general council of 200 met each other to elect a small council which elected four syndicts, but the system was dominated by a small number of powerful families. In short, the Swiss political process was mostly dominated by powerful interests, controlled monopolised while paying lip service to the idea of Swiss freedom. Geneva was a contradictory place, full of different ideas and certainly not a utopian republic, but the belief that it should be, or that it used to be, and that males had ancient privileges and rights to participate in political decisions those stories of the saga of liberation were a dominant presence in Genevan life. Whenever its citizens could vote, only around 1,500 out of about 18,500 were classed as citizens with voting rights. And the direction of politics, the important decisions, were really dominated by a few powerful families. One visitor said that it was being run like a little fiefdom or a dynasty, and continued that this manner of acting displeases many people, and one could even say that everyone is murmuring about it. On top of this, the growth of capitalism, new industries and banking began to increase inequality across the continent. New money poured into Geneva, watchmaking, cotton spinning, banking all developed, but in such a close-knit city, some were questioning the utility of new ostentatious displays of wealth, privilege and luxury. It sparked a debate about inequality and morality across the city. The church lamented the increasing displays of wealth, with one theologian writing that it wasn't a surprise if, having degenerated from the simple and frugal lifestyles of our father, we have also degenerated from their virtues. Many blamed France, which it borders just over there, the importation of French fashions, Frenchification. Luxury was traditionally associated with indolence and vice, which the critics of commerce argued was the opposite of what makes good citizens. Modesty, frugality, hard work. Even a government report declared that everyday impurity, worldly vanity and luxury are growing. The present generation has completely degenerated from the frugality and piety of our ancestors, and there is every indication that the evil is growing. Many cities and countries even had laws against owning, displaying or wearing certain luxury goods bans on certain fabrics, foods and jewellery, but hypocritically, they were bans for everyone except, quote, to those of the first quality, as one law literally put it. Similar laws and exemptions applied across Europe. The debate about whether new commerce, luxury and wealth was a blessing or a curse was happening across Europe too. 
On the one side, supporters made the claim that new trade and interactions between peoples and nations would lead to an increase in manners and civility, new ways of talking to one another, and of course an increase in wealth and comforts for everyone too. While on the other side of the argument, detractors claimed it would lead to self-interest over virtue, envy and ambition over traditional pious religious values. The increasingly powerful bourgeoisie were arguing that the government were levying taxes against the people's will, restricting liberty, that free trade and its rewards were a benefit for all. The Genevan government suppressed radical writing like this, while the church warned of increasing disorder. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was born here in 1712. I'm not going to understate my admiration for Rousseau. He was a brilliant, original, contradictory and paradoxical figure. He was the first critic of modern inequality. He laid the foundations for modern psychology, for the political idea of sovereignty of the people, for romanticism, for ecology, for equality. He was even the author of the first modern autobiography. He was, in short, a genius. So I don't know if you can see, but there's a statue of Rousseau on that island there. And I've made some friends. Rousseau grew up in Geneva at a time when those debates about commerce and luxury and democracy were spreading through the city. Much of it was taking place here in the Saint-Chevet district where the Rousseaus lived. Rousseau's grandfather was a supporter of the new bourgeoisie which were fighting for its rights against the ancient regime and historian Helena Rosenblatt writes that no other bloc in Geneva housed as many political agitators and demonstrators as this one did. Rousseau himself later wrote that from my most tender childhood I had received principles, maxims, others would say prejudices which have never completely deserted me. It's likely that Rousseau grew up on those stories of the saga of liberation and that the democratic and republican rights and principles that Genevans had had for centuries were being trampled on by its oligarchal rulers. Rousseau soon left Geneva and immersed himself in the bourgeois intellectual salon life of Paris, but he came to dislike everything about elite French life. And when in 1750 the Dijon Academy ran a competition offering a prize for the best essay answering the question, has the progress of the sciences and arts done more to corrupt morals or to improve them, he argued against the grain. Progress, he said, wasn't helping, it was corrupting morality. In his celebrated first discourse, which catapulted him to fame overnight, Rousseau argued that the establishment life of sciences and arts in big cities make people arrogant, the successful and the privileged use their success to dominate, and the wise were turned by the pursuit of wealth and status into, quote, base parasites. He said that the arts and sciences spread garlands of flowers over the iron chains of society. He argued that society imposed upon people models of conformity, politeness, decorum and ceremony at the expense of real virtue. 
He wrote, Jealousy, suspicion, fear, coldness, reserve, hate and fraud lie constantly concealed under that uniform and deceitful veil of politeness. The veil is all surface, a mask used for social climbing rather than the greater good. He continued that we do not ask whether a book is useful, but whether it's well written. Rewards are lavished on wit and ingenuity while virtue is left unhonoured. There are a thousand prizes for fine discourses and none for good actions. In effect, praise from an in-group is more important than true good. He saw high society as a pecking order of sycophants, civility for the sake of the powerful, ambition, status, reputation, all more important than what was true or good. It's a proto-psychological argument because, like Freud, who very much admired Rousseau, he's saying what appears on the surface is not always the truth of our actions and desires. How often do you realise that you've said something because that's what you think your boss wants to hear, or sucked up to superiors rather than told them what you really mean? How often have you said something to a friend that you've realised in retrospect you didn't really mean? And how often have you realised that your motivations for doing something afterwards turned out to be different to what you thought at the time? He wrote that, like the statue of Glaucus, which was so disfigured by time, seas and tempests that it looked more like a wild beast than a god, the human soul, altered in society by a thousand causes perpetually reoccurring, by the acquisition of a multitude of truths and errors, by the changes happening to the constitution of the body, and by the continual jarring of the passions has, so to speak, changed in appearance so as to be hardly recognisable. I'm across the border in France where Rousseau spent a lot of time in Annecy. It's a beautiful place. It's where he met the love of his life, an older woman, Madame de Warron, who paid for his education and supported him. Um, I'm going to go to their house down the road in Chambray. He spent a lot of time walking around here and writing. The Alps are just over there. It's a beautiful lake. And he also wrote the best-selling novel of the 18th century, a novel called Julie, about a love affair that was destined not to work, and it's full of philosophy and politics too. Rousseau is significant because at the time, people believed in a fixed human makeup, a human nature, like they were imbued with an original sin, for example. He was revolutionary because he argued that human psychology, what defined human, changes across history. He despised the inequality he saw growing everywhere, arguing that while some inequality was natural, men are not naturally kings or lords or courtiers or rich men. All are born naked and poor, all are subject to the miseries of life, to sorrows, ills, needs and pains of every kind. He thought that inequality that came from our natural strengths and weaknesses were justified, but that those inequalities that came from privilege, money, power, led us to wearing those veils, an inauthentic experience. He asked, what will become of virtue when one must get rich at any price? 
And he wrote that insatiable ambition and a thirst of raising their fortunes and the desire to surpass others inspired all to injure one another with a secret jealousy and a mask of benevolence. Although he thought that we couldn't go back, he argued we were happier in nature and that our emergence from a state of nature meant that, quote, all ran headlong into their chains in the hope of securing their liberty. Instead of liberty, we have nothing to show for ourselves but a frivolous and deceitful appearance, honour without virtue, reason without wisdom, and pleasure without happiness. This idea of a mask or veil of status that we all wear meant he was also one of the first thinkers of what we now refer to as ideology, which is why Rousseau was a forerunner to much of the thought that came after him. He attacked those that argued that wealth and commerce and luxury were bringing virtue across Europe, and he made many enemies across the continent, and he signed his essays, Citizen of Geneva. To many in Geneva, it seemed that Rousseau was right. New wealth did not seem to be improving the morals of the city. Patriotism, many argued, was being replaced by something new, by selfishness. Citizenship in Geneva was being sold to the highest bidder. Prostitution seemed to be on the rise. Children increasingly born out of wedlock. Drunkenness and vanity were endemic. One Genevan wrote that the rich abandoned themselves to arrogance. They were accused of buying the Republic. Rousseau later wrote in his autobiography that when he returned to Geneva, its ideas of laws and liberty were not as clear-cut as I would have wished. And he wrote time and time again that he just wished to be useful to his native city, drawing out the Republican spirit, finding a foundation for virtue, good morals and ethical governance. Rousseau's theory naturally led to a question. If people were being corrupted by society, what were people like before entering into society? What was it that was being corrupted? Where does goodness reside? The dominant theory was that man was born wicked and made good by society. People were socialized, but Rousseau turned this on its head. He wrote in a letter that the question is to examine the hidden but very real relations which exist between the nature of government and the genius, morals and knowledge of citizens. And this would involve me in delicate discussions. This research is good to do in Geneva. He spent the summer of 1754 in the city digesting new material for what would become his magnum opus, The Social Contract and in a work that would have an almost unsurpassed influence on the history of Europe, arming the French revolutionaries with intellectual weaponry and inspiring democratic movements and thinkers for centuries to come, Rousseau, in the flick of a pen, changed the definition of a word that's central to politics, sovereignty. At the time, the standard view was that the sovereign was the monarch, and that the monarch was sovereign for two reasons. First, because people had handed over some of their freedom to them in exchange for security. And second, 
because God had willed that the monarch had a divine right to rule. Why else would they be there? This was the basis of ancien regime politics. For example, Louis XV of France had said that it is in my person alone that sovereign power resides. In Geneva, the elitist patrician government had argued that handing power to the people would lead to chaos and disorder, in the politician Jean-Robert Chouet's words, continuous peril. Influentially, the patrician Jacob de Champeau-Rouge argued that the best type of government, and the most favourable to liberty, is that of an elite council, composed of the most wiser, enlightened and important citizens in small enough number to avoid the inconveniences of the multitude. He warned of the ignorance of the little people and the passions by which is so easily allows itself to be carried away. In response, the politician Pierre Fatio argued that the Greeks and Romans assembled up to 20,000 people three times a month. Assemblies of the people were one of the principal supports of liberty. Fatio was eventually executed by Geneva's patrician leaders. His supporters were tortured and hanged. Although not killed, Rousseau's grandfather was amongst those punished. Geneva's ruling patricians accused the people of insubordination and disloyalty to the city. Being good citizens and obeying leaders was a duty that they had. This was the era of pamphleteering, of increased literacy, of journals and philosophy, and in 1718 what came to be known as the Anonymous Letters circulated around Geneva, arguing that Genevans had been a free people once, and that their rights were being trampled on by tyrannical leaders, that the General Assembly had once had to approve all legislation, and that they had the right to assemble every five years. This quote, being one of the principal supports of its liberty. The anonymous letters were denounced by the government as tending towards anarchy, full of seditious maxims against all governments. Assemblies were forbidden, and the patricians in charge argued that Rome perished by the very hands of the people, and that these pernicious letters would lead to confusion and disorder, eventually leading to tyranny. The council, they said, looked after the citizenry, and they should be grateful and happy. That right there is uh, one of the places Rousseau lived in with Madame de Warron. It was one of his happiest times. It's been turned into a museum. I just sat outside and had lunch. And uh, I've never been on a pilgrimage, but it's so peaceful here and I feel like for the first time I know what a pilgrimage feels like. It's a really beautiful place. And I signed the guest book for all of us. Rousseau took aim at the ruling patricians and the emerging bourgeoisie at the same time. They both forgot something important, that it wasn't about the ruler or the sovereign, it wasn't about yourself, it was about the people. The people were sovereign. His 1762 book, The Social Contract, sent shockwaves across Europe and is famous for declaring that man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. 
The most popular view of the time, which came from Enlightenment thinkers like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, and one that the rulers of Geneva relied on, was that when we emerge from a state of nature and enter into society, we necessarily give up a part of our freedom, handing it over to a king or a ruler, in exchange for their protection, security and civil society. In doing so, the ruler becomes the sovereign. Hobbes said that without this, we would be, in his famous words, in a war of all against all. Rousseau despised that idea because he thought it was impossible to give up your own freedom. You had to be more free within the social contract than you were before, otherwise you'd leave. As Rosenblatt writes, this is one of Rousseau's most important ideas. Quote, a popular sovereign, composed of all the people to which the government magistrates are accountable as simple officers, charged with only the execution of the laws passed by the sovereign. Rousseau wrote, quite simply, that the people, being subject to the laws, ought to be their author. His work then set upon a difficult task. It tried to explore how a multitude of individuals could come together into a community of people. He was worried about the selfish individualism fostered by bourgeois life as much as the tyranny the bourgeoisie were fighting against. In this, he was very much ahead of his time. Each, he said, when they came together in a community, is an indivisible part of the whole. From this emerged his most enduring idea, the general will. The general will must both come from all and apply to all, he said. He said that if each person gives themselves over to the sovereign body as a whole, then each is as free as before, and no one has any interest in oppressing or restricting any other's freedom. In other words, all are equal before the law. He thinks people coming together in small city-state-like assemblies of the sort found in Switzerland was the best form of democracy, but that often being impossible in modern societies, he favours what he calls elective aristocracy, what we'd call representative democracy today, which is meant to be the rule by the wisest in the service of and directed by the general will of the people democratically. This all seems quite obvious to us now, but that's only because Rousseau made it so. He, almost single-handedly, with the flick of a pen, made the people sovereign and the governments just the servants of the people. And in doing so, he gave the French revolutionaries and many thinkers after the tools they needed to talk about freedom in a new way and he still continues to be one of the central philosophic sources for how we think about democracy today. He's taught across undergraduate political classes. Back in Geneva, Rousseau was both loved and loathed. One citizen wrote, thank you for the present you have given us. It is an arsenal of the most excellent weapons. One of his allies in Geneva wrote to him that his books were widely read and that even your enemies are forced to admit that your genius is displayed with most vigour. Your work must frighten tyrants, born and unborn. It makes liberty ferment in all hearts. 
But the book was banned, caused an uproar across Europe, and was burned in France. Rousseau was forced into exile in the foothills of the Jura Mountains in Switzerland. Rousseau was a wonderful contradiction. He was a success in a society he despised, by individuals he didn't like. He fell out endlessly with his friends. He wrote the first modern autobiography, ruthlessly examining his own faults, which were many. He wrote a treatise on education and child rearing, despite giving his own up for adoption. He wrote a treatise on the theatre and how pernicious it was, despite being a playwright. And he tried to reconcile the individual and the communal impulses in us. And many say he failed. But I think the fact that he leans into these paradoxes in the world and in himself is what makes him an incredible writer. He tried honestly to tackle the contradictions of the emerging modern world. Contradictions he saw so distinctly in his home city community versus emerging capitalism, elites versus new money, consumerism versus virtue, nature versus civilization, tyrants versus the people, the paradoxes of modernity. And while it didn't happen until many decades after Rousseau's death, Switzerland slowly became a modern federal republic. Historian Mark Lerner writes that because of the lack of a strong central government in the Swiss Confederation, there was space for profound political innovation and experimentation in the variety of republics at the cantonal level. He called the Switzerland of the Enlightenment period, drawing on those myths and sagas of liberation, a laboratory of liberty. And the French revolutionaries declared in 1789 that men are born and remain free and equal in rights. The principle of all sovereignty rests essentially in the nation, and the law is the expression of the general will. Sources of great European rivers, the Rhone and the Rhine, tributaries of the Danube and the Po, all spring from these mountains. And, poetically then, so did much of the discourse and debate that framed, and still frames, much of how we talk about our lives. I feel like this is becoming a bit of a theme. See the Germany video. The American founding fathers drew on Swiss history and politics when framing their own independence. Rousseau's thought leads to Kant, Hegel and Marx. Robespierre read him religiously. Historian Thomas McFarland writes that he may well have been the most important cultural figure of the last quarter millennium. And he was the father of Romanticism, a movement that the philosopher Isaiah Berlin called the greatest single shift in the consciousness of the West. All of this is why I can, I think, with good reason, describe him as maybe the most influential person to have ever lived. And the historical literature is full of inspired travellers pilgrimaging, eloping and exploring while reading Rousseau. He put Switzerland on the map for aristocrats of the Grand Tour of Europe, 
By the early 19th century, travel guides were printed that included engravings illustrating Rousseau's house on the Ile Saint-Pierre, one of Rousseau in his garden, and scenes from Julie and his autobiography. The Romantics took from Rousseau his interest in what humans were like outside of that corrupting influence of society, asking what authentic humans might be like, uncorrupted by the seeking of status and wealth and privilege. He put the individual's freedom at the core of his thinking, and in doing so, in all of his writings, explored individual passions and character and nature at the same time as our political communal life. The poet William Wordsworth set off on a walking tour from England to the Alps, inspired by Rousseau, and Shelley read his novel Julie, The New Heloise on the shores of Lake Geneva and took a boat trip with Byron that Rousseau himself wrote about. I think this is a good spot for lunch. Richard Fraylin has written that Geneva was both the starting point and the finishing point, the inspiration and the goal of Rousseau's political thought. It reminds us that what we usually think of as abstract ideas in dusty books or disappearing conversations have their roots in real places, real lives, in bricks and mortar, in mountains and, and scenery and landscape. And we too often forget that. I'll leave you with the words of Rousseau himself, who, in writing about his own work, said, Here is the history of the government of Geneva. Is it not, word for word, the image of our republic since its birth until today? I therefore took your constitution, which I found good, as a model of political institutions, and am proposing you as an example to Europe. Thank you to all of these incredible Patreon supporters. These videos take a long time to research, write and make. I do a lot of reading. They're always sourced and there's a bibliography in the description below. I've written something short on why I think this kind of well-researched long-form content is worth supporting. It's through the link below too. If you agree, then you can support then and now by pledging anything from a single dollar per month and get your name in credits, access to scripts early and become a member of the Discord server. If you can't do that, I know everyone says this, but please do subscribe, hit the bell, like, leave a comment. These things help with the algorithm so, so much. I'm also trying out a newsletter. I'm going to distill and summarize each video into a quick, easily digestible email for those who don't have time or want to recap, along with some related insights. Sign up below. As always, more than anything, thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, 
AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business. Removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers. Providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.